Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of How to Live the Podcast, where we have real, meaningful, and fun conversations with people who inspire us, and sometimes we just have them with each other. We are your hosts, Jess and Steph Dadon. It is an absolute pleasure to be in your ears today. I just love saying that start. It makes me laugh. It makes me laugh too. How was your weekend? It was pretty good if you call sitting on the couch and watching absolutely everything on Netflix pretty good, which I do. I do too. That sounds wonderful. I am really enjoying this new Netflix show that I told you about, Never Have I Ever. It is the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh my God. It is so good. Can I tell you my problem though? I started watching it with Elliot and he sucks at binge watching TV. So we've only watched like one and a half episodes in the last few days. But had I been watching it on my own, I would have already finished the whole season. Oh my God. Same. I'm watching it with Renan. We've watched three episodes and I just feel like it's never going to happen again because he kind of likes it, but maybe it's like a little bit girly for him. But I feel like maybe we should just go off and watch it on our own. Yeah, it's such a cute show. It's such like a feel good. You don't have to think. You get to laugh a little bit. It has everything really. Totally. And I love that it's representing a different kind of family than you would normally see on TV. And I did a little bit of digging and I saw that it's actually created by Mindy Kaling, who I love. And on the weekend, I also downloaded her book because I was feeling a little bit guilty about all the TV I was watching. And I was like, I should mix it up with a book, but I still want to have some fun. So I downloaded her book. It's called Is Everyone Hanging Out With Me and Other Concerns? It's basically her, but a book. It's amazing. Oh my gosh, that would be so good. I'll have to add that to my list for this year of books. Yeah, so good. Having such a good laugh. Oh, awesome. Okay, well, let's get into today's episode. Tell them who's here. So really, really excited about this. We actually recorded this episode late last year and we've just been waiting for the perfect moment to release it. And it is obviously now you're about to hear why. So today's guest is Veronica Roth who is an American novelist best known for her debut New York Times best-selling Divergent trilogy. So you might know Divergent, Insurgent, and Allegiant, the incredible books that also got turned into movies starring Shailene Woodley. I remember when I first went to see Divergent at the movies and I just loved it so much. And it was completely surreal to get to sit down with Veronica and also pretty cool to hear about how an author works because, you know, they just work at home in their own space. So even though we were talking to her about that a few months ago when it didn't really apply to all of us, now it's really funny because it does apply to all of us and we are all working from home. So we're all kind of like authors, I guess. I know. So I'm loving hearing all of her work from home tips. And actually lately, I haven't told you this yet, but I've been doing a little bit of creative writing at home. It's (gasps) Honestly, something I haven't done in so many years. Obviously, I do all the copywriting for Tubes, which I have a lot of fun with, but just writing for myself, I haven't done in so long. And so listening to her talk about it, I'm like, oh, these are kind of some awesome tips. We do talk about how everybody has a book in them. That's like a bit of a saying. And so I feel like she's got some amazing tips for getting other people to start thinking about if they want to be writing a book in isolation. You know, Shakespeare wrote a whole play, so you never know what you're going to write. Totally. That's so cool. I love that. What a fun new creative outlet for you. I know. Piano, writing. I feel like I'm not someone with hobbies, but now in ISO, I'm getting them back again. It's really fun. Totally. Everyone needs a few hobbies, right? Like it just makes it so much more fun. Oh, I love that. I'm very excited. Can't wait to read it. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Oh, I don't know. That 
feels like a very long time away. Like having somebody actually read your work sounds terrifying, as Veronica confirms in this episode. So let's get straight into it. Here is Veronica Roth. We usually start off with a little icebreaker and yours was pretty easy. So we thought we would start off by asking you if you were in Divergent, what faction do you think you would be in? As you might imagine, I have had occasion to answer this question before. (laughs) So now I have like a really elaborate answer, which is the result of much thought. But I feel that I would likely choose abnegation because of like some idea of what it would be. But then I would punk out and just like leave and become factionless because there's no way I could do that for any sustained period of time. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Like it's good to try one out for a little bit, but then long-term when we were trying to think of ours, we were like, we're divergent. So we read recently um, that you're now a full-time author. We work in fashion and we don't even know any authors. I was trying to think about it. So we'd love to know like what does being a full-time author actually look like day to day? Well, For one thing, I usually don't have to get dressed in reasonable clothes. So for this interview and you guys said it would be on video, I was like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Not because I wasn't happy about doing it, but because I was like, that means I have to put on real pants. We can't see your pants. And that's the best part about podcasting as well. Generally, unless you add a video that you can just do it in whatever. Like the other day we were doing it in bed. That's nice. But other than that, I mean, it's hard because you have a lot of just empty time. There's plenty of work to do. So you have to be disciplined about structuring your time, which was something new for me when I started writing books because I'd always had a class schedule at that point. So there was a lot of frantic rushing before deadlines when I first got started. And now I'm better at scheduling, but people don't write all day. I think that's kind of a surprise to a lot of people. Like if you think about it, it makes sense, but no one can really sustain that level of effort for that long unless it's a really special like situation. So I usually try to work in the morning, like late morning, you know, afternoon, and then answer a lot of emails and do social media and stuff like that. And then I'll try and pick it up again in the afternoon. And then I try to be done at like five or six, just have a healthy work-life balance. Yeah, that's the hard thing about working for yourself, isn't it? Technically, from when you wake up to when you go to sleep, you're in your office if you're at home and that's where you work from. So you kind of end up putting this pressure on yourself. I should be working all the time. And like, I know a lot of people who freelance and they find it really hard to find that balance and they end up always feeling guilty when they're not working. Yeah, but your home becomes the place where you experience stress. So it stops being relaxing going home if you're in a stressful time in your life. So I try to keep certain rooms like clear of work. Yeah. We used to work for home for many, many years from my home. And I just got to a point where I was like, I cannot do this anymore. There'd be times where I'd look up and it was like 6 p.m. I'm still in my pajamas. I haven't brushed my teeth. And there's my breakfast bowl, my lunch bowl and my dinner bowl in front of my laptop. And I'm like, this is gross. (laughs) We need to get an office. (laughs) Well, it's also a perk, really, of working from home. There are definite perks that you get to wake up and you're already at work and you don't have to get dressed. Like, that's kind of amazing. You're not stuck in traffic. So then taking it back to kind of the beginning of Veronica, what were you like as a kid? It was a little bit of a nightmare, attitude-wise. Like, very defensive child did not like to be given directions or 
corrected in any way. And I was always reading. And when I say always, I mean like I was in the shower reading, you know, the holding the book like out of the spray. I do have several like ruined Harry Potter paperbacks. They probably would have been valuable, but they're water damaged. They're like ripply, you know. I played pretend like just a little too long. You know, those kids, there's always like a couple in your class where you're like, wow, you're, you haven't grown up yet. But yeah, and uh, I know I'm the youngest of three. So they were kind of like a duo because they're a little closer in age. And then there was like me. <laughs> yeah, I feel like third kids are always fairly easygoing. Jess is also a third. I'm the second. So I'm like middle child attention seeking. But then like the third was just happy, go lucky, happy doing our own thing. I don't know if I'd describe me as happy-go-lucky. I was always kind of high-maintenance. <laughs> I think an important thing to admit, like I am not an easygoing person, and I think that's okay. It's what has allowed me to get things done and to have the life that I have. But I was in really independent. I don't need to be entertained. I don't need attention. It's all good. We all have our things, and like as you grow up, if you can just own them and accept who you are, life is much easier because when you're younger, it's like, I don't want to be whatever I am, you know? And I'm not surprised to hear that you say you had a wild imagination because I think to write the books that you have, still, you must have an incredible imagination. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so how old were you when you started dabbling in writing? Like, did it happen young for you or was it something that you explored later? It was definitely young. So my mom had all these like kits when we were growing up because she did not want to hear that we were bored. She like wouldn't tolerate that kind of complaint. So she bought us art supplies, like so many art supplies. And then one of the little kits that she bought us was like this make your own book kit. And it just had a bunch of empty pages and a cover that you could decorate and you could send it off and they would bind it. And I think that was the first time it occurred to me that like making a book was something that I could do. But I got really frustrated with the paper because I was still like a child, a computer literate child. So I went to our computer instead, which is in our basement, and started writing out all the things that came to my mind. And it was always like sci-fi or fantasy or something like that, because that's what I like to read. So I bet if my siblings found my writing on the computer, they would have been like very confused and or alarmed. <laughs> <laughs> That kit sounds amazing. If only we'd actually followed through with it, I feel like it would be really awesome to look at now. But yeah, I was about 11 at the time. And I started writing almost every day after that. And it was a little bit alarming because I would just kind of hole up in one room. And also my face gets really hot when I'm like really involved in a scene. So my mom would like come into my room and I'd be sitting there alone at the computer with my face all red. She was like, <laughs> <laughs> you were 11 at that point, but you were also super young when you wrote Divergent. We were really surprised to read that you were still at college when you wrote that book. And we love that because we really think age has nothing to do with a person's potential. So did you know that you were onto a big thing when you wrote Divergent? No, I was kind of like, is anyone going to read this? <laughs> I knew I'd gotten better in my writing and that it was the best thing I had written up to that point. I was in a writing class in college and I had a really great professor. I wasn't writing the kind of thing that I would later write for that class because it's a different genre that they were expecting. But she kind of pointed out a piece of something I had done and said, this is actually the best writing in this piece. And it was not this floral writing style, you know, with like lots of words. Um, it was pretty sparse and pared down. And she was like, it's just better when you don't try so hard. 
And I had written Divergent kind of with that in mind. And that's, I think, why Triss's voice is so, she's not that descriptive. You know, she's just really like to the point. And so I knew that it was like my best work, but I didn't know that anything would come of it. And I think what happened is that, you know, The Hunger Games had come out and it had created this demand for a kind of like dystopian stories. And at that time, that's just what I had. It's kind of fortuitous, I guess. So I sent it out and I was like, let's just see what'll happen. I didn't have any expectations. I had plans to get like a regular day job. I wanted to be a copy editor for a publisher. So that was kind of my loose plan. And it just, I don't know, it happened really fast. But timing is really important as ever. I love that advice that you got that was better when you don't try so hard. I think that applies to everything in life. Even like when we're designing a new collection, I get really focused on the fact that it has to be good. And that's when I'm creating my worst work. You know, you almost just need to be like, no one's going to see this. No one cares what it is. And then that's when you start to be able to actually be creative. Do you find that with writing? The fear is the enemy of real good work, I think. Just the fear that no one will care or that no one will like it, or just anything about other people's reactions, um, I find really paralyzing. And I think the work of real work of writing to me is just like getting everybody else out and trying to figure out what it is that like I'm trying to say just to myself. Only talk to one person is kind of my philosophy when I'm writing a draft at least. So yeah, I think anything you make because you're afraid is probably going to be like a little bit overdone, you know? Yeah, and I I definitely feel the parallel there. With Divergent, what was the inspiration behind that book? I was in a psychology class in college, and I was learning about exposure therapy, which is a method of treating anxiety or phobias in which you repeatedly encounter whatever stimulus provokes your fear, but you do it in a safe environment, which is supposed to help convince your brain that it's not actually in as much danger as it might be telling you. And it's highly effective, which I find fascinating, especially as someone with anxiety, pretty profound anxiety. For me, it offered a lot of hope, but in a kind of terrifying way because exposure therapy sounds like torture and it is, but I wanted to take that psychological reality, exaggerate it and turn it into fiction. So what if you could facilitate this kind of therapy, but with these like simulated realities because I love a good is it real is it not real kind of situation so that was really the inspiration for Divergent and what's odd is that a couple years after I wrote it I did exposure therapy for anxiety so it was almost like I was getting myself ready for it by writing the book which was so weird and cool I've actually heard of exposure therapy because I have a really big phobia that weirdly my sister and my brother and our dad, we realize, have all had. But to a much lesser extent. Yeah. For me, it's like more intense than everybody else. And even just telling you this, like literally is triggering it for me. And I've heard about exposure therapy and I had a psychologist who was not experienced in that once try to do it with me. And she was just like, is this your phobia? Oh and I was my like, God. Ah! And then for days or weeks after that, I was literally so shaken from it that still I'm like, so I haven't gotten over that. But so did it work for you when you did the exposure therapy? Yeah, it helped a lot. So I discovered we had to find a reliable trigger for my anxiety. And the only one that I could find, because it was so situational, you know, like, oh, I saw this mean thing on the internet, therefore I'm freaking out, you know. But one star reviews on Amazon for my books really like reliably made me upset. So 
I would just have to read them like in the presence of my therapist so that he could talk me through kind of the reactions. Like, why does this make you anxious? Like, what are the things that you're thinking that are making you anxious? How can we kind of talk you through it? And, and the more I did it, I felt like I was suddenly made a Teflon. I don't know what people can say to me now that'll upset me <laughs> the way that these things did. So I feel like I still carry it with me, the strength of it. And I'm not hostile to reviews at all. So I think people's opinions should be out there. Like, they're not for me, they're for other readers. So if I don't take them that personally. But I think it was just hard to be so young and to have so many opinions just like coming at you. And it felt so personal. So it, it was something to work through. Yeah, like it's not surprising that that was full on for you. I think now it's something that a lot of people experience to different extents with social media and getting negative comments. It's really full on and confronting, but really cool that you were able to overcome it. Yeah, I think you're right, though. Any negative comment on the internet about something that you've made feels kind of the same way where you feel like, oh, no, does everyone feel this way? Am I a total waste of time? Those kinds of fears can really start to haunt you. So it's good to face, why do I think that that's true? Just one person's opinion is everyone's opinion suddenly. You know, like, why does that scare me so much? Yeah, well, it's probably also like, we're not really wired to have things coming at us like that, negativity coming at us in droves like that on technology. Like as humans, usually it would just be like, if one person in the street passing you said something, you don't suddenly think everyone thinks that. But just to see it anonymously on the internet, it just suddenly feels like everyone's against you. Like we weren't prepared for this situation. I definitely agree. And I heard something once and read it somewhere. I wish I could tell you where. Say when you read like anonymous or I guess all internet comments would qualify as kind of anonymous because they're not spoken by another person. You hear them in your own voice. So for a while, when I read the reviews, I would read them in like a really horrible, like Russian accent. So I would read them in like a different accent just to be like, this isn't you saying this to yourself. This is another person and you don't know who they are. That's such a fascinating fact. And just hearing you say that, that makes so much sense to me. You talking negatively to yourself turns into other people talking negatively about you in your own head. Whoa, like that's so trippy. Yeah. That's crazy. Coming back to the book and you were at this stage where you had finished this book that you thought was really great. You thought maybe no one was going to read it. And then when you finally like got that call that it was going to be published, was there like an element of being scared that you were about to show people who you really are and like what's inside of you? And even like going to show it to publishers as well, like having anybody read your work. I remember where I was when I got that call and I was right next to the dumpsters behind my building. <laughs> the most glamorous spot. Yes, extremely. <laughs> All of my big moments have like really unglamorous aspects to them. <laughs> Just to keep you grounded. I believe that the whoever's out there wants to keep me humble. <laughs> and have my dog pee on the carpet right after I get this important phone call, which did happen. <sighs> so I was behind the dumpster and I had to have my agent who's giving me the news like repeat it more than once because I just was like, I feel like I just made that up. <laughs> Can you just say it one more time? And then I went upstairs and had a panic attack. So yes, there was a lot of fear because it was just like, this is big and I don't know how it's going to go. And it's bigger than anything I've done so far. And I just don't know how I'm going to do. So there was a lot of uncertainty there. It sounds like an agent found your publisher. So how did you end up with that agent? Well, I wrote a book before Divergent. It was not good at all. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> I look back at it sometimes and I'm like, yeah, that wasn't good. Not everything you write is going to be good. But I sent out like summaries of it, which are like in query letter form to about 35 agents to see if anyone would be interested. And nobody was. But one of the agents who rejected me gave me notes. And she said, I think you have some potential. So send me whatever you have next. I don't think this is the thing, but I think you can do better, basically. And so when I finished Divergent, I sent it to her. And she still had like nine pages of notes, but she offered to represent me if I would accept those notes. And I did because they were great and I like getting notes. So that's kind of how I found her. I only sent queries out to like eight people with Divergent and you only need one, one person to believe that you're worth the effort really in order to make something happen. I think it's always so interesting to hear people's stories of their big breaks because, you know, it's never just, yeah, like I sent it to 30 people and then they all fought over me. And it's always that story of I got so many no's and so many people told me it was shit. And it's often something that ends up going on to be like such a success like Divergent. And it actually reminds me, I was staying in a hotel, I was in London recently, and there was this amazing book on my bedside called Letters of Note. And I have that. <laughs> do you? No way. That's so cool. And there's this one letter in it. I mean, they're all amazing. But there's this letter that somebody got pitched Faulty Towers, the TV show. And then they wrote to their boss after being like, this is such an obnoxious, terrible show. It's never going to get anywhere. We should definitely pass on it. <laughs> <laughs> People telling you no doesn't mean that they're right. Yeah. We also like to like spread the net so wide to allow for that reason, you know? So like we know that we're going to get at least 10 no's before we get one little open of that door. Maybe you can come inside next week. Yeah, that's a smart attitude to have about it. And then when you got the call, I guess, about Divergent being made into a movie, like how did that all come about? Did you approach them? Did they approach you? What happened in that scenario? Yeah, because not only did you get, you know, your first big book that you'd written in college was getting published, it got turned into a movie and like not just any movie, Divergent starring some of the biggest actors in the world. That must have just been huge. Were you chasing that? Oh, no. I really only ever wanted to be an author. So it was just kind of like a very special bonus. Say, calling it that makes it sound smaller than it is, but <laughs> that's really how it felt. Like the actual dream was having the book on the shelf. So that was the dream come true. And everything else was just more than I'd ever imagined. So I got approached by some movie interests like before the book came out because Hunger Games wasn't out yet, but Twilight had come out. And so they were starting to look for young adult content. And my book made a little attention when it got announced because it was like a bigger deal in industry terms, whatever. <laughs> You're like, some people said it was a big deal. I don't know. I mean, I honestly was like so unaware of anything at that time. So I had no idea what was going on, but there was some movie interest and I went with people who seemed to have read the book and understood it and it sold to them. And then we just sat around for like a year because it really takes a long time to put these things together. And so you never really know if it's going to happen. So you don't really celebrate because who knows, you know? And so even when they like signed on a director, when they signed on Shailene Woodley, when they, when they got a screenwriter, like I didn't celebrate. I didn't celebrate until Kate Winslet got cast. <laughs> I was like, they wouldn't sign her on if they weren't going to make it. So they're probably going to make it. <laughs> now it's real. Oh boy. Yeah, that was cool. So then how involved were you in that process? Do you just kind of write the book and 
sign the rights over and then they write the movie or like were you like there on set in the thick of it what happens there it was kind of in the middle so I'm definitely not a screenwriter and didn't want to be so I was happy to hand that part over but I also wanted to keep an eye on it and the thing about movie stuff is that they basically invite you to be a voice in the room but there's a lot of voices in that room and no one has like this definitive say exactly Some people have more authority than other people, but that's just how it works. And it's kind of a group effort. So I was a voice in the room and I would go to set. When they shot the first movie, it was in Chicago. So I lived nearby. So I would go more often, maybe every week or every two weeks. And I would give input if they asked for it. But mostly I was working on Allegiant, the book at that time. So Mm -hmm. it was kind of like, all right. Good luck. I hope it goes well. The director of the first movie would call and ask questions. Like if he didn't feel like he understood the world building enough or because I hadn't clarified something in the book that he wanted to show. Because you show so much in like a very small amount of time in a movie. So he wanted to make sure he wasn't like putting things in the background that would become a problem later and stuff like that. But I also had a little cameo in that one. Did you? You did? What point are you in it? I've had like six different hairstyles since then. But I am dressed as a Dauntless and I like burst through the door at the top of the Sears Tower and I am supposed to look breathless but excited and then walk (laughs) to this railing. And that's my cameo. (laughs) That must have been so surreal. So weird. And it's a green screen, obviously. So it's like, look at that X on the wall and look excited. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I can write that, but I can't be that. (laughs) I am not a good actor. That's okay. You're a good writer. So yeah, we you, can't you have got everything. that one. Oh my God. And it's really funny that you were riding a legion at the time because I feel like you must have had this pull in you every day. It's okay. I could sit down and keep riding or I could go hang out on set with Kate Winslet and Zoe Kravitz. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of distracting. There wasn't a lot of work getting done. <laughs> <laughs> so d- you got to meet all the actors and everything? I did. Yeah. Which was a lot for me because I've never met anyone that I've seen on a big screen ever before that moment. So the first person I met was Jai Courtney, Australian native, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And he plays Eric in the movie and he is very muscular. Um, And he was literally pumping iron when I met him, like before the take. And someone introduced me and he didn't know who I was at first. And then they were like, she's the author. And he was like, hey, like so friendly. And meanwhile, I was just like this big muscly guy. (laughs) It was just a very weird experience. (laughs) It must have been not only meeting famous actors that you know, but like they're acting in something you wrote. So that dynamic is like not at all how you would be expecting to meet famous people. No, it wasn't like, hey, I'm such a big fan. It was like supposed to be more peer level interaction. And I was like, I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't pretend that I haven't seen Kate Winslet my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that's so cool to hear because so many people can just completely relate to that. You know, like if I was put in that situation, I would just probably burst out laughing and like run away, you know, (laughs) like it's a really ridiculous situation to be put in as like a normal person. Yes, it's funny you should say that because when I did meet Kate Winslet, I like kept it together, you know, really, it was hard, but I did it. And then she had to go like start shooting and I walked over to a corner and sat down and laughed hysterically for about five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what just happened. When we were chatting about being an author and having these amazing books, we feel like everyone has this secret dream of being an author, you know, whether it's 
a memoir or a novel, you know, it's just like something that you might dabble in in your lifetime. So we were wondering if you had any secrets or like tips that you could kind of share to like writing a book that is successful. I do know that a lot of people lift up the idea of writing a book as this special thing that they want to do one day. But the actual work of writing a book is so tedious and annoying for such long periods of time that I kind of wonder if most people should like shift their dreams to like, you know, (laughs) a short story, (laughs) which is not to discourage anyone from doing it, but just to say that as with anything, you know, every job has work in it, annoying work, like filing, but that's like the book equivalent of that. It's just like the toil of every day. So if someone can tolerate that, then they can definitely write a book, but they have to be able to like follow through with it. And it takes like at least six months usually. So um, that's kind of a big undertaking for a lot of people. Being able to write on days when you don't feel like writing is I think the most important skill that you need in order to finish something, especially a big project. Because most days, I'd say a little bit over 50% of the days that I sit down to write, I don't really want to be doing that. There's a lot of other things I'd rather be doing. But I hold you know, the goal in mind and I plan everything out and I get to work. I'm sure that you guys know what I mean. Everyone who does any kind of creative work knows that like a lot of the time you're just like, why? One thousand percent. So is there something that you've kind of found that gets you through those creative blocks? Yeah. I mean, outlining helps. Having a plan, knowing where you're going. You can always deviate from that plan. And I often do. But just like having a sense of direction is important. And I make playlists. And it helps me because usually there's songs that I listened to when I was brainstorming. And so the song will kind of trigger me to remember what it was that made me want to write the book to begin with and what excited me about it, you know, in the early stages. And so if I can reconnect to that regularly, like I put on the headphones, I listen to some of the playlists, I try and picture all the exciting scenes that I had in mind, and the characters and why I loved them. And I get myself back to that mindset. It helps a lot. Yeah, I've seen you posting on Instagram about what you were listening to on repeat when you wrote something. And it's so cool to like get that insight into what was going on in your brain at the time. So obviously, like once you've released a book, we've seen also you posting on Instagram about going on a book tour. And I feel like that's so cool. It's straight out of the movies. I don't know if you've watched Younger, but we love watching this show Younger at the moment. They're always going on book tours. So we're really interested in that whole thing. So like what does actually going on a book tour look like? It's a lot. It's kind of a relentless schedule. So the one I just went on, you know, you get up in the morning, you immediately go to the airport and your flight takes over lunch usually. So you land and you eat and you take a shower because you feel like airplane everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the event, which is always the fun part. And then right after that, then the event happens over dinner. So then you can't eat until after that. And then you fall right asleep because you're very tired. Then you get up and get on an airplane again. It'll make you crazy. And you're always changing time zones in the States at least. So it'll really throw you for a loop. If you're not careful, you got to take good care of yourself and eat as many vegetables as possible and drink a lot of water because airplanes are like really dehydrating. So I guess what I'm saying is it's not very glamorous, as you might imagine. (laughs) It's a lot of airplanes and not eating. I love how real you keep it. And I think that's something we really try to do on the podcast. And throughout this whole thing, you've just been so open and honest, which I just think is so awesome and important for people to hear, you know, in the time where we're all looking at other people's lives and thinking that they're better than ours. Looking at everyone's final draft, which is what their social media is. 
that's something we talk about a lot on this podcast is the negative effects of social media and how everybody's just posting this curated life and the negative effects it's having on people's mental health. And actually, when we were looking through your Instagram, we were like, this is kind of the perfect Instagram, perfectly imperfect, because we were like, you have a really nice balance. You post every few days, you keep people up to date with what you're doing, but it's not in a way that you're making people jealous. You write, sometimes they're short captions, but mostly they're like a nice little story. So we feel like we need to know your secrets. We search for the perfect balance on Instagram. It's something we talk about a lot. How can we make it so that other people aren't envious, but we're still using it to show people what we're up to. And so that we can also feel good about using it. Because for a long time when we were on the platform, we didn't feel good about it either, which is never what you want. No, I mean, you want to strike that balance between like, I never want to complain on Instagram because like I have a really good life. And so for to have those like minor complaints immortalized on social media doesn't sound very good to me. But yeah, just not trying to present this image of everything being awesome all the time because it's really demoralizing for people to look at. And it's also not real. I mean, that's not what life is. Sometimes I'll really agonize over a caption if I don't feel like I found the right way into it. But most of the time I don't post unless I have something to say. If I don't have a story in mind, I usually am like, well, why say anything? Or my caption will be like a palm tree, you know? (laughs) (laughs) emoji or this is my dog. Well, I think that's so important. People feel the need to post everything all the time, but maybe it's because you're waiting for those moments to present themselves. You're not sitting on a bus and you see like a funny cat walk by and you're like, gotta post it. We feel the need to post everything now. And it's if you just wait for the right moments and enjoy the other ones, then maybe we'll be good. Yeah, for sure. And then we also saw that your New Year's resolution was to read a stack of books as high as your hip. Was that because you think that people should get off their phones? I would like to be off my phone a little more. Everyone's got to live their own life. So I'm not here to tell anyone what to do with theirs. But with mine, activate that part of your phone that will tell you how much time you spend on each app. A sickening exercise. Yes, it's horrible. Or how many times you open it. You know, like I'm just waiting for five seconds in a grocery store and I'm checking Instagram. It's like, not bad to check Instagram, but the fact that I can't sit still for five seconds is alarming to me. So yeah, I do try to read paper books because it gives you a really nice tangible sense of progress. Like you can feel it and it allows you to put your phone to the side for a little while and focus on someone else's life, which I think is good for everybody's mental health. Just like think about yourself less, which isn't like think less of yourself, but just give yourself a break. Nobody is designed to be that focused on themselves all the time. I think it will break your mind. So that's my philosophy. Mm, We could all be a little bit more abnegation, right? I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) We love how open you are on Instagram. And you've also talked about having anxiety and you've brought that up today as well, which we think is really brave and so important to help other people to feel like they can talk about it as well. So... We wanted to ask you, what are some of the things that have helped create a sense of balance and calm in your life? Well, I think the post you're referring to is when I talked about getting off medication. Mm -hmm. And so for a while, medication was what kept me feeling okay. And man, I'm so grateful for it. It was a lifesaver. Otherwise, I'm not a meditator. (laughs) I am not a meditator. But science says that it helps. So I do it. I do it like people take medicine. Just like, all right, just, ugh. I don't like to be alone with my thoughts. So I do that, but what else do I do? I sleep and writing really helps for me a lot because I think it gets me out of my head. It gets me into someone else's head. 
And it's a bit of an escape too. That's what I think why I gravitate towards sci-fi and fantasy so much. There's a lot of great things about it, but also just like letting yourself go to another world and forget everything about this one is so, I mean, it's really powerful and helpful. So for me, those are kind of the things that kept me on track. And now I'm not on the medication anymore, which I'm just giving a try to see if it works and see how I feel without it. I think there's merit to learning techniques to focus on your breathing or on the present when everything is kind of buzzing in your head, because sometimes you don't have a distraction. So you just have to learn to be present. But there's definitely like activities that make you feel present. Like when I walk the dog, sometimes I just leave the headphones and the phone behind and just listen to the world around me. And um, I think that's, I don't know, just like retraining your brain not to need constant distraction, I think is my main goal with meditation. Because people who ruminate, you know, people who kind of turn things over are more likely to develop mental illness, I think, just because that sort of like leads you into dark places. So try to stop that process when I feel it happening. But it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to like get it as a consistent practice in your life. Like I've been a casual meditator for many, many years now. And only in the last few months have I started I do it pretty much every single day in the morning. But actually, can I tell you, I've seen so many benefits from it that, you know, I definitely can be a lot more present because people are constantly telling us, be present, be mindful. And it's like, how? I can't. But just by doing this meditation every day and like focusing on my breathing, this has been one of the biggest perks that recently I had a facial, you know, I have bad skin. And so when they're doing extractions and they're like pulling on my face, it's so painful. And I'm actually, I'm able to just tune into my breath and follow my breath. And I'm not even kidding. I cannot feel the facial. Mm, that's magical. Yeah. I feel convicted by this because I also have a chronic pain condition and they tell you to meditate for it because it helps. And I'm always like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, if someone would have told me to do it and that that would have been the result, I would have been like, I don't believe you, but it just happened naturally. And I play with it while I'm in the facial. I'll pay attention to my face for a second and feel how painful it is. And then I'm like, nope, got to go back to the breath. It literally just goes away. It's pretty crazy. Wow. You're finding equanimity. <laughs> <laughs> I also like that um, on that post about anxiety and stopping to take meds, you turned off comments. You've got Instagram down. Like you need to school us all on this. <laughs> Thanks. I believe really strongly in boundaries. And so if I ever post a picture, like I posted one once of my bicep because I had been strength training and talking about body image stuff a little bit. And I turn off comments there because I was like, I do not want to invite the comments of the internet on this. Like, I just want to post it and not think about it all day. And that's how I felt about the meds post too. I mean, I don't think people give themselves permission to do that. Like I can present something and not invite commentary. It's my space and I get to make it feel safe. I think that's true of anybody on social media. Yeah, you're so right. It's never even occurred to me to turn off comments, but I do think that that's a really valuable lesson that we could all learn. So we always wrap up interviews with some quick fire questions. So we would love to fire away at you. First one is, are you a stickler for grammar? Yes. <laughs> Should I give more detail? If you want to. <laughs> I'll say I am because that's what I wanted to do for a living, but I'm not because I also believe that language should be able to change and that its main purpose is communication and not adherence to rules that no longer make sense. So I'm a little more fluid with it in my own work, especially if you're trying to get like a voice or something. 
but it does like grate on me. It's really bad. <laughs> when we were emailing you yesterday, I was like, can't make any mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I have noticed. <laughs> Where do you find inspiration when you're feeling stuck? Science, magazines, and articles, usually. Whether it's psychology, like the social sciences, or just straight up science discoveries. I subscribe to Scientific American and I read the New York Times science section a lot. So I love reading about technology and about, I don't know, biology, especially new things going on in our world that aren't trash fire politics or global warming. (laughs) (laughs) Surely those things can be inspiration for like a dystopian future. (laughs) I was going to say, actually reading about science now, you do read a lot about global warming, which is depressing, but necessary. Yeah. I love that insight. Like I thought you were going to say I go for walks in nature, but that's so cool to hear what you do. So we saw you were in Australia recently with your husband. Yeah, we saw you were in Melbourne. Was it a year ago? Yes. Oh, I miss it. It was great. (laughs) Did you have a favorite thing that you did while you were here? Yeah. So we went and snorkeled in the barrier reef. Amazing. That was like a bucket list item. And I mean, I've never seen anything like that. Like I put my head under with my husband and we both pulled our heads out at the same time and went, oh my God, like, did you see all that stuff? Like, it's amazing. We were both like children suddenly. (laughs) And it was really special. But then also meeting the animals at the wildlife sanctuary outside of Melbourne. I don't know. You guys got some amazing creatures down there. Uh, Did you go to Hillsville Sanctuary? Yes, I did. Yeah, cool. Oh, how amazing is it? You can just like walk through with the kangaroos. Yes. And the surly koalas. Yes. All they want is eucalyptus or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they get high on it. Did you hear that? Yes, they get high on it. They all have chlamydia and they're terrible. (laughs) Yeah, they're very aggressive. (laughs) Who is your favorite author? When I was a kid, my favorites. This is always the easiest to remember. I grew up on Harry Potter, so that's like one of my favorite series of all time. But I also love Garth Nix, who is Australian also, and Lois Lowry and Madeline Lengel. They were my like faves. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for chatting to us. This has been so incredible. It's been great getting to know you as well. Like you're such an open book. Ooh, pun intended or not <laughs> intended. It's been really, really special. So thank you. Thank you for having me. That was so amazing. Veronica is such a freaking awesome person. I mean, as if we couldn't tell that already from her Instagram. So if you guys want to follow her, it's at V Roth Books. Definitely recommend that one. And then also she's just released a new book called Chosen Ones that came out in April and it's actually her first adult novel. So pretty excited about that. Definitely going to be reading it soon. Highly recommend you guys get on that too. So if you did like this episode, you can help us get the word out in a few ways. And we would love to ask you for your help. You can leave a review in your podcast app or leave us five stars. You can share a picture of where you're listening on Instagram. Make sure you tag us at how to live and do come on over to our Facebook group, how to live the podcast join in the conversation there. We just love connecting with you guys. Have beautiful weeks, you guys. Stay safe, stay warm, and we'll look forward to chatting to you next week for another awesome episode. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye.